What if I told you there was a condition that afflicted one in every three American adults? That's 96 million people, but it feels like no one's really talking about it. It has symptoms like blurred vision, numbness, and fatigue, and it can lead to other serious conditions like heart disease or stroke. And yet, more than 80% of people don't even realize they might have it. This condition is called prediabetes, and it's serious. When left unchecked, it typically goes on to become type 2 diabetes. I just told you the bad news, but the good news is that there's actually something you can do about it. You can even reverse it if you address it in time. There is so much that you can do. This is empowering. You know, I don't want people to think of it as like this doom and gloom thing. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, talks a lot about his own personal experience with diabetes. He didn't even realize he had prediabetes until it had already progressed all the way to type 2 diabetes. By then, he was suffering such severe symptoms, like vision loss, that he woke up one morning in 2016 and he couldn't even see the numbers on his alarm clock. And when the doctor said, you're going to be on medicine the rest of your life and you're likely to lose your sight, I didn't sign up for that. Adams decided to do the work and take matters into his own hands. And so I decided, listen, clean out the cupboard, threw it all in the garbage, and started fresh. And started eating a whole food, plant-based diet. Three weeks into my initiative, my vision came back. Adams embarked on a whole new lifestyle. He started a plant-based diet and a regular exercise routine. He didn't just learn to live with his disease, he put it into remission. So today, we're breaking it all down. How can we prevent prediabetes in the first place? And if you're diagnosed with prediabetes, what can you do to reverse it and keep it from escalating into a much more serious health problem? Welcome to Body Unboxed. I'm your host, Anahad O'Connor, and I'm here with our resident nutrition expert, Professor Joan Salji Blake. Dr. Joan, welcome. Thank you, Anahad. As we heard in our opening, today's topic affects a massive number of people, 96 million adults in America alone, and yet we don't talk about it nearly enough. That's right, Anahad. I call prediabetes the elephant in the room. The reason we don't talk about it enough is because there aren't any outward symptoms, and we're going to actually discuss that problem later in the episode. Here's another issue. Once you get diagnosed with prediabetes, it basically puts Put you on deck to get diabetes within the next five years if you don't do anything about it. This is why we are talking about this mammoth elephant. We need to not only get the word out, but also that you can reverse prediabetes. And most importantly, it may not be as hard as you think. That's right, Joan. And we were so lucky to speak with Lauren Harris-Pincus about this crucial issue. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist, and she's the author of a really great book called The Everything Easy Pre-Diabetes Cookbook, 200 Healthy Recipes to Reverse and Manage Pre-Diabetes. We had a great conversation with her. And the first thing we asked her is, what the heck is pre-diabetes? Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Joan and Anahad, for having me on this show. I'm very excited to be here today. So prediabetes is when your blood sugar is higher than what's considered to be normal, but not high enough yet to be diagnosed with diabetes. So it's that kind of interim phase. People used to call it borderline. Some doctors probably still call it borderline. But diagnostically speaking, there's a test called the hemoglobin A1C. It's a simple blood test that you can get from your doctor. 
And that measures about a two to three month average of your blood sugar, as opposed to like that one second snapshot in time when you would stick your finger or get your regular blood work to look at that glucose number. It doesn't tell you a whole lot because it's only that split second of information that you're getting. That hemoglobin A1C gives you a two to three month average, a much better understanding of what's going on in your body. So basically, there's a percentage range under 5.7 is considered within normal limits. 5.7 to 6.4 is considered having prediabetes. And then 6.5 and above is considered having diabetes. So that 5.7 to 6.4 range that we're talking about. 96 million Americans Mm -hmm. fall into that category, of which at least 80% don't know, are unaware. And that is a ludicrous amount of people. It's just mind-blowing. And I mean, we're talking about adults here. So we're talking over 18. Kids is a whole nother thing because when we trained decades ago, there was no such thing as adolescents and teens having prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. There was always juvenile type 1 diabetes where your body doesn't make insulin, but that's a totally different thing. This did not occur in kids. It was called adult onset diabetes, right? But now with you know the rise in obesity and a whole bunch of other things among younger people, we're seeing it in kids. What are the symptoms? How would you know if you have prediabetes? You likely won't. That's the thing. Mm. That's why over 80% of that 96 million people don't know because you're not really symptomatic. And it's funny because they say this all the time. These are the silent lifestyle diseases that we talk about, right? High cholesterol, high blood sugar, high blood pressure. You tend not to feel it usually. I mean, if every time you ate something that raised your blood sugar and you got like a zap, you would you would know, right? And say, hey, that's not pleasant. Something's going on. But the fact that it, it really is a silent thing. That's really why we have such issue with so many people not being aware that it's an issue. And our friend Jill Weisenberger says prediabetes isn't a pre-problem. Right. And that's a hundred percent true. It is a warning sign that something's going on, but before you actually got to be in that blood sugar range that we're talking about, your body's been working overtime for probably at least a decade behind the scenes, under the water level. Your pancreas has been working really hard to try and keep up with your rising blood sugar, to make enough insulin to try and keep it in that normal range. And when it starts to have trouble doing that and your insulin resistance increases to the point where it's not functioning properly, that's when you start to see that number, but it's been going on for a while. So it's really not the first indicator that there's an issue. It's the first thing you can see, but there's definitely been something going on, which is why it's so important to do something about it because it's not really the beginning. It's just the actual display of an issue that shows up. Right. And isn't it also true, Lauren, that when you're in the prediabetes range, aren't there damage being done inside the body besides just going to wiping out the pancreas and so they can't make insulin anymore? Correct. So it is very possible that when we think of diabetes, we think of the things that occur as a result. So we think of some cardiovascular damage, some peripheral vascular damage, nerve ending damage, like, you know, typically people in the feet, we think of issues that happen potential problems with vision, kidney problems, all sorts of things that happen as a result of having that chronically high blood sugar. I like to call it a metaphor I use is having sand in your socks. 
that's a miserable feeling when there's like sand in your socks in between your toes and it rubs together. But when you have a chronically elevated blood sugar, it's kind of like that within all of your blood vessels. It's kind of like little grains of sand with all that extra glucose. It's just constantly irritating all those like arteries and blood vessels. And when you think about it, in, in those vessels around your heart, which is why people with diabetes are much more likely to develop heart disease, is that it's kind of scratching like kind of the inside linings of your arteries. And then what happens? It gets inflamed to try and heal. Think about when you scratch yourself and then it kind of gets red and sort of inflamed to try and heal. And that's what happens all over your body. So we, ha- and people can't tell. And, and that's why it's a problem. So the truth is you have the ability potentially to reverse these things from once you're diagnosed with prediabetes, about 25% of people progress to having diabetes in three to five years, with 70% of people with prediabetes ultimately converting over into being diagnosed with actual diabetes. But you can absolutely do something about that. And the sooner, the better, because you're mitigating and minimizing any of that free kind of like low level damage that starts to occur even potentially at pre-diabetes blood sugar levels. I just want to tell you, I love the whole sand analogy. And I just want to tell you that everybody listening right now is like curling their toes <laughs> because they're getting the whole sand thing going and they're like, oh gosh, that is so uncomfortable. So what are some of the risk factors that would put you at risk for getting this pre-diabetes? Okay. So age, so being 45 years or older is one having a parent or brother or sister that has diabetes. This is a very, very genetically influenced thing, right? Not being very physically active because being sedentary, you're not using up those calories and the blood sugar, the sugar and carbs that you consume. If you have had gestational diabetes, you know, as a woman in pregnancy, you're more likely to develop diabetes. Or if you've had a, a baby that's nine pounds or over, race and ethnicity are a factor that obviously there's nothing you can do about that. African-Americans and people that are Hispanic or Latino, Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders, they are also more at risk. And having overweight or obesity, unfortunately, you know, puts you at an increased risk for that insulin resistance due to, you know, a higher body fat percentage, particularly the visceral fat around the middle, around the organs. And this is where we kind of get into that thing about weight, because it's not about what you weigh. It's about your body fat percentage and where it is. If you have a person who tends to have a narrow waist and you carry your weight in your hips and your thighs, you are at a much lower risk than a person who is much narrower on the bottom and carries their weight in the middle around those central organs, which is where that visceral fat is that, that tends to be the culprit causing the problem. You know, and we know, Lauren, you know this, and I know this, over 70% of Americans are overweight. So it's, 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 no, it's a no-brainer is why we're seeing more of an incident of this. Listen, diabetes is in my family. Um, I got it. Anaheim, it's in your family too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mine this is too. a topic that hits pretty close to home. My father had diabetes. I have, you know, siblings who have pre-diabetes. So, you know, yeah. this is like such mm-hmm. an important topic. And I think everyone knows someone who has diabetes. So I'm curious, Lauren, you know, you said the symptoms of prediabetes are silent pretty much. So what are some of the tests that people can do to find out if they have prediabetes or frank diabetes? And should everyone get tested? So the first thing is to have a simple physical with your doctor. And I always recommend people starting, you know, from 
their pediatrician on through into young adulthood, get a physical. People think there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to go to the doctor. You Mm -hmm. want to establish a relationship with a doctor before there's something wrong with you. That's the whole idea of prevention. Mm -hmm. Because also for people, sometimes, you know, there are outliers among people who develop things earlier than other people that you don't think you're at risk for this reason or that reason, but you may be. So a simple standard blood work that a doctor is going to do is going to take a fasting glucose level in in any blood test that you're going to get from a doctor. It's not definitive in any way, but it's a screening tool. So just because it's normal doesn't mean that you don't have prediabetes, but if it's elevated, that's an indicator that you probably should have that A1C test, the hemoglobin A1C, because that, again, that one snapshot in time doesn't give you a ton of information, but a follow-up hemoglobin A1C will give you that average to see where you are and to follow that every six months to a year if you're concerned about it and see where it's headed and where it's going. And that's the test that you're going to watch for when you do make some lifestyle interventions to see what happens. Because again, that fasting glucose could be so variable based on so many different things that it's not a really reliable indicator if something's either wrong with you or not wrong with you. So let's say, you know, you go to the doctor, uh, you get the physical, you get these tests, you know, your A1C is in that pre-diabetes range. It sounds like, you know, obviously that's something that would come as a shock to anyone and it's pretty concerning, but it sounds like there's hope, there's things you can do. So can you talk about what you can do to uh, keep pre-diabetes from escalating to diabetes or even um, to reverse it? Absolutely. And there's so many things you can do. And it's funny, in in the beginning of my book, the first thing, there's a letter to the reader. And I'm like, I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to be your cheerleader. There is so much that you can do. This is empowering. You know, I don't want people to think of it as like this doom and gloom thing. This is like a little warning sign that you have that you can take control of your health and your lifestyle. And it's not a special thing that you need to do. The recommendations for everyone to live a healthy lifestyle basically are the things that are going to help to potentially reverse and manage that prediabetes. So, Mm. and I don't like to even talk about food as much, although it is very important. I want everybody to realize that stress and sleep are two very important things in a lifestyle that can help control your blood sugar. When you don't get adequate either time the right time amount of sleep, meaning seven to nine hours, or if it's not restful, meaning you're in bed that long, but you're not really getting that deep REM sleep for whatever reason. You could have sleep apnea. You could have to keep getting up to go to the bathroom. You could have a partner that keeps waking you up or babies that keep Mm -hmm. whatever reason. When you don't have consistent and restful, adequate sleep, your hormones don't play nice with each other and your cortisol levels go up and it helps to increase fat storage and makes your insulin resistance worse and all these things that affect your blood sugar in addition to your food. People always say, I don't understand. I don't eat this or I don't eat that. Whatever state you're at in your body at this time is a result of many factors, a lot more than just what you're eating. So stress and sleep are huge. Physical activity, and I say joyful movement because I don't want you to feel like it's a chore. We all have to move. You know, what do they say? Sitting's the new smoking. (laughs) We're all on screens all day. Even working from home as opposed to being in an office where you constantly had to go up and go do things and go find someone to talk to. So we sit a lot more and we're not using that sugar up in our blood. It's just, we're just sitting. So exercise, physical activity is the one time that you can help to remove excess sugar from your bloodstream without the use of insulin. And you don't have to be like running 10 miles. Literally any kind of movement 
is great. Something that's joyful, even if it's yoga, stretching, low-level weight training, anything that you find that is repeatable and pleasant to you, you do because that will help help with your insulin resistance for sure. Lauren, why do you think that Anaheim and I started this podcast? We started this podcast so that people would listen to it and go walk. Just walk and listen to it. I mean, we're fighting for you out there. So that's why we started this. So I love the joyful movement. Yeah. And obviously food is important. I don't want people to be afraid of carbs. The first thing that a doctor usually says to somebody is either, well, just eat less and move more, which isn't super helpful. Or they'll say, oh, just don't eat carbs, which again, isn't super helpful or true. And then, you know, or somebody will say, oh, just go keto, which is definitely not necessary. (laughs) And people just get scared and they don't know what to do and they have no guidance. And the truth is that carbs are not the enemy at all. In fact, the healthiest foods in the world are carbohydrate-based foods, plant-based foods. We're talking fruits, veggies, nuts, beans, seeds, whole grains, plus lean proteins. Okay. So the idea is about the kinds that you're picking and the balance and how they interrelate to other things. So we always talk about my plate or the portion plate, because if you picture your plate, I always say it's about how you choose to fill it. You know, when you go out to dinner and you're like, I want grilled chicken. So they give you like 12 ounces of grilled chicken that fills up half your plate the other half of the plate is filled to its entirety with rice and there's a sprig of broccoli in the in the corner, right? That same meal can be prediabetes or diabetes friendly by having broccoli and another vegetable or a side salad there taking up half the plate. A quarter of it is your chicken and a quarter of it is your rice or a baked potato or a sweet potato or something like that. And that balance is the way our bodies will handle that carbohydrate better because we want protein and fiber at every meal and snack to help balance that blood sugar because it's digested more slowly. It blunts that rise in blood sugar so that you can have carbohydrate. It's just about how much and what it's with so that you can try to keep that blood sugar level a little bit more stable. So protein and fiber are the key. And guess where fiber is in carbohydrate foods? So it's critically important. You know, I get constantly, well, can I have fruit? They, they told me I can't have fruit because it has sugar. And I'm like, all right, time out. <laughs> There's a big difference between added sugar and the sugar in fruit. But what people don't realize, and Joan knows this too, is that fruit like, let's say, strawberries, wild blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, those pigmented purple, red, blue polyphenols, those superpower antioxidants have been shown to improve insulin resistance, even though you're consuming them in a food that has carbohydrate. And those foods are lower glycemic foods. So it's all about choices. And you have to be a little bit methodical and a little wise about what you're picking. But it's really not incredibly complicated to eat like what would be considered a normal diet. You don't need specialty, low-carb, keto foods. You don't need any of that in order to eat healthfully to serve your blood sugar well. You were talking about fiber, which I think is something that a lot of people don't really grasp the importance of that. And you know, I was looking at research recently. There was a great NIH-funded study that actually looked at what Americans on average are eating. And it found that almost half of all the carbs that people are eating are what the study called low quality carbs, which are carbs that don't have fiber, like white bread and bagels and chips and crackers. 
And just 9% of all the calories that Americans consume on average were what they called high quality carbs, which are the carbs you were talking about that have that come with fiber, things like the fruits and the vegetables and the whole grains and you know ground rice and quinoa. And so if people, it seems like, could just maybe increase the high quality carbs and prioritize those over the low quality carbs, it sounds like that is something that could be in line with the advice you're recommending. Absolutely. And the thing is, about 95% of Americans don't consume the recommended amount of fiber daily and buy a lot. So we're talking the average fiber intakes around 15-ish grams, and the recommendations are anywhere from 25 to 38-ish based on the dietary guidelines for Americans, depending on the calorie level that you consume. But we're so far away from that. And that's a key factor here. We're talking about those quality carbs that have fiber, and it's super important. At the same time, only one in 10 Americans consumes the recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables one in 10. So it's not a mystery to see where the problem is here. It's not carbs. It's that we're not eating quality carbs. We're not eating the ones that actually fuel our body and provide the vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and phytochemicals that help to prevent lifestyle diseases of aging. You know, we're consuming more refined and non-nutrient dense foods and carbohydrates. So people lump carbs into one category, but it's far, far more complicated than that, for sure. Well, that's why you wrote this book, you know, the Everything Easy Pre-Diabetes Cookbook, because in the book, I love this book, and, and not only does it, the recipes, the 200 recipes, but you explain this in the beginning of this, all about fiber and, and timing of your meals and what needs to be on your meal and proportionality. Let's not, you know, bulk up on all the, the rice and let's get some veggies in there. But also, Lauren, you know, a lot of people don't realize that meeting with a registered dietitian nutritionist can really help a person look at their lifestyle, their medical history, their personal lifestyle, and put it all together and help them map out an eating style that could help reverse diabetes or pre-diabetes so it doesn't go into diabetes. And, and you and I know this, that many insurance companies will pay for the service. And it's you know, all you have to do is you're, uh, pay the copay. So you're a copay away <laughs> from sitting down with a registered dietitian nutritionist who can really, who's trained to do this and really help you prevent diabetes by getting on top of pre-diabetes ahead of time. A hundred percent. And the one thing that I want to address too, which also is the elephant in the room, is weight. It's so important to me because I work so, so hard um, to constantly write about and talk about and do interviews about weight stigma and how damaging weight stigma is to people. Health professionals, unfortunately... They don't know a lot about how to treat obesity. They haven't been trained in medical school. It's just not part of the curriculum. And there's just a lot of stigma and bias where patients do not want to seek out care because they don't want to be scolded or they just don't want to be told to lose weight and they don't want to be told to just eat less and they just don't even want to hear it. So they don't even go to the doctor for treatment, which I think in large part why a lot of people don't realize they have prediabetes. But the reason that this is important is because You don't need to have a a quote-unquote normal range BMI in order to be healthy or in order to improve your prediabetes. Somebody who's 100 pounds overweight might think, why even bother? I mean, really. They might say, I can't lose that much weight. You know, it'll never get better. I've tried everything. Why should I bother? And my answer is, here's why you should bother. Because 
number one, you'll feel better. And every, every change that you make doesn't have to be related to the scale. I don't even talk about the scale with people most of the time because I don't want that to be your driver. I've seen people do a lot of really unwise things to lose weight for the sake of the scale. And that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about stress and sleep and joyful movement and quality carbohydrates and quality foods, we're not talking about weight. We're talking about ways to improve how your body functions, how it looks on the inside, how you feel because you're now getting some movement, better sleep, better stress management, all of those things. And quality foods that when they're balanced right, give you energy during the day, you don't feel like you're crashing all the time. If weight loss will help your prediabetes, and in a lot of cases it will, we're talking about a 5 to 7% weight loss. We're not talking about some huge far-reaching number that is unattainable. If somebody weighs 200 pounds, that's 10 pounds. It's not an enormous number. It's something that can significantly statistically help improve your blood sugar, your blood pressure, and your cholesterol potentially, and all of those biomarkers that we look at as a measure of overall cardiometabolic health. But you don't have to be skinny in order to be healthy. And in fact, oftentimes getting skinny causes other problems. That's not necessarily the thing that we aim for. And I don't want the scale to be the indicator of your success. But a little bit of weight loss can help. And hopefully, if you're making all of those other changes, it's a byproduct, just a side effect. And and the weight comes off too, instead of it being the focus. I love that you said that because I know a lot of people are saying, I'm too far gone and you're not too far gone. You know, just a little bit of weight loss may change this and change it all around. And you're going to feel better. You're eating healthier and you're meeting with somebody who's going to take you as a person and make it work. You know, Anaheim and I can't thank you enough. This pre-diabetes, this large mammoth elephant, we're hoping that the public gets an understanding of this and does something about it. And I can't thank you enough because with your wisdom and your expertise. Boy, oh boy. I'm going to go back and call my family. Anaham, you going to call yours and let them make sure they listen to this? Absolutely. This is such a great <laughs> and important topic and so relevant to so many people. As you said, almost 100 million people out there in the United States alone have prediabetes out of a population of almost 350 million. I mean, that is just eye-popping numbers. And like you said, it can set you up for so many other chronic diseases, not just type 2 diabetes, but heart disease and others as well. So yeah, I hope people are listening and taking this to heart and and making those, like you said, simple lifestyle changes from diet to sleep to stress management, or just going to the doctor and getting checked. That, that's the first step. So Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joan and Anaha. This was so much fun. Joan, that was such a great interview. And I think Lauren raised some really important topics. For me, the real highlight was that people should focus on the quality of their foods, especially when it comes to carbs, which can be a very controversial topic. You know, you you can eat carbs and still avoid or reverse prediabetes as long as you're focusing on the quality of your carbs, eating high quality carbs. Right. I mean, how many times has your mother told you it's quality over quantity, right? So, you know, Mm -hmm. for God's goodness sakes, listen to your mother. So, (laughs) you know, it is about quality. It's also about combination. So what she had said is really, really important. You're just not sitting and having it like an apple, but you're going to have maybe some protein with it. So like an apple paired with peanut butter, right? Right, which, you know, hello, you have children. You probably eat this all day long. One of my favorite foods. (laughs) Not (laughs) just for kids. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's true. That's true. Another thing that she said that I found really interesting was that we had talked about that it's in younger people now, 18, 19, and 20s and early 30s. Go to your doctor. How many people of that age do not go to a doctor? So this prediabetes could be going on for decades. So I think that was really an important thing to make sure you have that checkup, especially like you and me, Anaham, we have it in our family. You know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So it is there already. So why don't we try to stay on top of it? We've heard from a number of experts, and we hope you found these conversations both educational and entertaining. But remember, we're not providing you with individual medical advice. So take your family's medical questions to your doctor, especially before starting any new diet or health routine. And for medical emergencies, contact emergency services. And don't forget to subscribe to Body Unboxed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on any bonus content. I'll be reading relevant chapters from my book, Nutrition and You, and we'll go even deeper into the science behind prediabetes. Join us again next week where we're talking about something really controversial. It's a debate of sorts. Can food be addictive? Thank you so much for joining us on Body Unboxed by Pearson. Body Unboxed is produced by Neon Hum Media. Our lead producer is Alexandra De Palma. The executive producer is Shara Morris. Morris.